Our scripture text this morning comes from the letter of 1 Peter, chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 17 through 23. Since you call upon a father who judges all people according to their actions without favoritism, you should conduct yourselves with reverence during the time of your dwelling in a strange land. Live in this way, knowing that you are not liberated by perishable things like silver or gold from the empty lifestyle you inherited from your ancestors. Instead, you are liberated by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a flawless, spotless lamb. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was only revealed at the end of the time. This was done for you, who through Christ are faithful to the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So now your faith and hope should rest in God. As you set yourselves apart by your obedience to the truth so that you might have genuine affection for your fellow believers, love each other deeply and earnestly. Do this because you have been given new birth, not the type of seed that decays, but from the seed that doesn't. This seed is God's life-giving and enduring word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So before we dive into the text and see what Peter has to say today. I just want to give you a kind of a little bit of a lay of the land and remind you where we are today. Now, some of you were here last week and some of you were not. So I'm going to just try to catch us up briefly to speed. So the first thing is we're kind of in a sermon series right now where we're asking the question, so what? Um, not because we think what we're doing is irrelevant, but because we, we know that Christ has been raised from the dead and that brings about all sorts of new realities in the world. And so we ask, so what? What are those new realities? What are the things in which we are living into because Christ has been raised from the dead? We believe we have salvation in Christ because of his death and resurrection, but there's a whole other litany of things that we are called to and that God does in us and with us because of the resurrection. And so that's where we are right now. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is to remind you that we are still in the season of Easter, right? Easter Sunday being what it was two weeks ago. Wonderful, great, great time to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in the church and, and in church history, we have, we have called Easter not just a day, thanks be to God, but a season, a season that lasts from seven weeks from Resurrection Sunday until Pentecost. And so we are now just under halfway through the season of Easter in week three. So there's the Christian calendar right there. You are here at the star. Okay, good. All right, next thing. We are going through this time and this period asking, so what? Um, And we're doing that by exploring the letter um, that Peter writes Um, to the churches in Asia, or in Asia Minor. And and again, just a reminder of where we're talking about, right? So so the the letter that Peter has written here is addressed to several churches throughout what we would call Asia Minor. Um, So you can see kind of the stars there. Those are the the four cities to whom Paul addresses this particular letter to. So so just it's kind of a reminder to us that this is not a letter necessarily to one specific group of people. Okay, this is what we might call a Catholic epistle, which means universal. Um, it, it is not just written to, let's say, the Thessalonians and their particular problems, right? The church of Thessalonica have some problems, and, and, and Paul would have written to them. 
about those particular problems. But here we're, 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 we're looking at something that's more of a wide address. So we, we might more consider it that, that, that this is more widespread and more general advice to the church, or particularly these churches in Asia Minor throughout this time in history. And so this is happening um, kind of... Uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s AD. Somewhere in there probably is where we're talking about. And and what has happened is the church has spread beyond kind of its initial push, which was through Jews in and around Jerusalem, Judea, and has kind of gone outwards, right? You remember Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then ends of the earth, right? So we're going into the ends of the earth now. And it's, and it's stopped being sort of just a Jewish movement within sort of the Jewish religion and, and spread beyond that to people outside, to Gentiles and to all sorts of other people. And it is just kind of, for lack of a better term, infecting the empire. And I use that, that term intentionally because it is having effects in the empire to where what's happening now is people are starting to be persecuted because of their belief and their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? It's not widespread, right? We're not talking about the widespread persecution that will definitely come later. But we're talking about sort of this persecution where people are beginning to, to bump up against the culture and the world around them because of this very fact that we are talking about, that the way of Jesus puts us at odds with oftentimes at odds with the prevailing culture around us. It's true today in our day and age right now where we live. It was true in the first century AD where the the practice of following Jesus put one out of step with the people around. So much so that that when when Peter addresses these churches, he, he addresses them as exiles. Exiles in the diaspora, exiles who are kind of dispersed all over the world, people who are, who are strangers in a strange land. You might be familiar with that kind of language, right? Where, where they just don't quite fit with the world around them because of their confession, because of their belief, because of the practices that come out of following after Jesus, some of these practices are, are very sort of practical. That is, they would withdraw from certain things that their culture did. Others are because they did strange stuff together, right? The churches would take communion together and they would say things like, this is the body of Christ and this is the blood of Christ. And, and that weirded out some people. They put them out of step with the culture around them to the point where they were feeling oftentimes persecuted because of the stances that they take. And so that's sort of the lay of the land of where we are. And and it's important to keep that in mind, right? As we hear words like you have an imperishable inheritance, right? We have that idea of people who who are really unrooted and and, and Peter is talking to them in, in very specific ways to say that it feels like you're unrooted in the culture around you. And, and that's true, but you have something greater and deeper than those cultural roots. You have a rooting in Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the lay of the land of where we are. So where does, where does Paul go, or excuse me, Peter, it's Peter, not Paul writing this one. Um, anyway, where is he going today? Well, he begins to talk, if this language of being people who, who are delivered from, from ransom or ransomed from a former way of being. Again, this, this is this idea that, that, that the people were, were, were held captive by something. Right? The, the language is very evocative. When you hear the word ransomed, right? my, my, first, my first thought, 
I don't know if any of you are like this. My first thought goes to piracy. I don't know why. Um, like pirates, like you're held captive by a pirate. I don't know why that's where my mind goes when I hear ransom, but that's where it is. But, but all sorts of ideas come in. And, and, and Paul uses this evocative language that, that the people of, of God even were held in captivity by something. Right? They, they, were, they were held in captivity. They were in chains. They were, they were enslaved to something or to someone. Paul doesn't really explicate, or Peter, gosh, I'm going to get that wrong all day. Peter doesn't really talk about what. He doesn't name it. But, but as we read through scriptures and as we try to understand, what, what Peter's saying is that it's not like that the people are held ransom to God because God doesn't need to pay God's self. And, and he doesn't use like the devil type of language, which we might pick up on and some people might want to use and talk about. But, but Peter talks about being held captive to something. And I would name this because of, because of the scriptures elsewhere and where, where Peter even goes with this scripture is that, is that we are not ransomed, like held at gunpoint by bandits or, or something else, but we are held in ransom to sin. Right? right? So if, if I'm going to go to Paul, which I will for now, is, is Paul often talks about being slaves to sin. Right? You might be familiar with that kind of language. Paul talks often about, I was a slave to sin, right? And who will free me from this body of death? That kind of language. And so, so I think it's fair to pick up on this idea that when we talk about ransom, when we talk about being captive to something, it's not that God needs to pay money to somebody to free us. That, that's not how this is going. And that's not the biblical witness that we're dealing with. But the overwhelming witness of scripture says that we are held captive to something and that something is sin. It's this, this propensity to, to do what, what is oftentimes counter to our best interests, what is all the time when it comes to sin counter to how we are created. We are held captive to it. So that, so that the, the language of scripture is that sin is an inevitability for humanity. Because of, of what happened with our first parents, right, with, with Adam and Eve, because of that sin that has just continued on and on and on and on and on and on, we, we, we just continually choose into sin, into disobeying what God's will is for us. We just keep falling into it. And, and despite our best efforts, we just keep falling into it, right? We, we try to turn over a new leaf. We try to go 180. We try to, we try to quit. We try to do all those sorts of things, but we keep getting drawn back in, right? That's the language uh, of, of scripture about how we deal with sin. The, the short is that humanity is not good at dealing with our own sin. I don't know if, I mean, I might get arguments on that one, but, but I just look at history and I say, we're not real good at dealing with our own sin. I just read a book where the backdrop was World War I, right? And all the people out of World War I saying, we should never do that again, right? They called it the war to end all wars. It was so horrible and so horrific that we said, surely we can find a better way of dealing with sin, which is ultimately what war comes out of and what happened. Right? <laughs> World War II. Which I don't know if it was worse, but it was arguably just as bad. We're not good at dealing with our own sin. Even, even in our best efforts, we're not good at dealing with our own sin. Again, this is what Paul picks, on, picks up on, right? In my mind, I know what I want to do. In my mind, I even know what is right. 
and yet I don't do it. I keep getting drawn back into what I shouldn't do. I keep getting drawn back in the things that, that aren't good for me or aren't good for people around me or aren't good for the society or aren't good for the world, right? All these things, I keep getting drawn back into it. Paul kind of, did it again. Peter labels this as sort of the futility of our ancestors, right? Because all throughout history, humanity has tried to deal with sin, Right? I mean, if we look at history, all the sin management is, is like the name of the game. We have laws because of sin management. We're trying to manage the sin of humanity. And we see that ultimately we're not real good at it. Sometimes better than others, but, but ultimately we seem to fail. The futility of your ancestors is what Peter calls it. Trying to deal with sin as humans without any sort of help, is somewhat like herding cats. In my mind, like, I know it's a funny analogy, but, but I, 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 like, we, we try to get everything together and we try to get them in a group, but you can't. You just can't do it. Right? My sin is cats and I'm trying to herd them and it's not working. Let alone me trying to manage anyone else's sin, Right? Be trying to make a better world, right? It's virtually impossible on our own. We try. We even put our best effort into it. But ultimately, what, what Paul will say is that it's, or Peter will say, is that Paul would say too, but it's futile. It's our own sort of futile and limited human nature trying to manage sin on our own. Now, elsewhere in scripture, we'll, we'll hear that we were never meant to do it on our own. And that's really the key. But in all of this, we're horrible. We're horrible at managing our own sin. And even when we try, even when we turn over a new leaf, so often we fall right back into it. Sin is a problem that we, on our own, cannot adequately deal with. We can try. We can make it by degree better, I suppose. But ultimately, it's there. It's back. And all of our ways of dealing with it on our own, all of the human ingenuity that has been poured into dealing with sin has been ultimately futile. And that's where Peter's going with this. We have been futile in our attempts, and our ancestors have been futile in their attempts. We can't buy our way out of it. Right? We're not ransomed or redeemed or, or made better by all the money in the world. Sin affects the rich and the poor alike. Our traditions haven't done any good. All the things we've tried to put together haven't, haven't helped. And Peter will go on to say that it's because these things won't save us. Money won't save us. Many have tried, right? Maybe some of us have tried, but it won't save us. Clinging to tradition just because it's tradition won't save us. Many have tried. How often do you hear, well, that's how we've always done it? And how many of us have said, well, that doesn't make it right or good or effective? These things are not... 
what gets us out of trouble when it comes to sin. Sin is a human problem that does not have ultimately a human answer. But as Peter says here, we do have an answer. We do. The problem we generally find with the answer that we have is it's not ours and it doesn't come from us and I can't manufacture it and I can't, I can't make money off of it. Some have tried. But ultimately, it, it's not my answer. And ultimately, the answer is beyond my control. Paul, Peter wants to, wants to remind the churches. Uh-oh. Hey, Regan. <laughs> I think my thing died. One too many clicks, my friends. The ultimate answer that comes, what, what really saves us is not our traditions, it's not our money, it's not power, it's not an act of will. What Peter will say is that what saves us, what redeems us, what ransoms us from sin, right? We are held captive by sin, which is generally by our own choices, We are held captive to sin, but the answer to that sin is what he says is the pure and spotless lamb. That is Jesus Christ, right? What ransoms us from sin is the blood of Christ. What ransoms us from sin is that God said, you can't deal with it on your own. You can't. And you've tried. God has even said, I've tried to give you means to deal with that. But you can't. And so ultimately what God says is the only answer for you to be ransomed from this sin that you keep falling back into is me. And God provides this answer and God answers that question and provides God's own self for this in Jesus Christ, not by dominating us, not by giving us laws to follow or better 10 commandments, right? What what ultimately God does to, to deliver us from sin and death is for Jesus to come and say, I will submit myself to sin and to death. So, so, so Christ dies. Christ, the only one without sin, dies. And in so doing, in his death and in his resurrection, He ransoms us, provides a way out, pays for it, however you want to put that. There's lots of metaphors we could use and no single one will contain it. But gives us freedom for the first time. Which calls us to live, as Peter says, in certain ways. Right? In verse 17, he says, you should conduct yourselves with reverence during this time of dwelling in a strange land. And then in 18, he says, live in this way, knowing that you were not liberated by those perishable things, but rather you are liberated by the blood of Christ who comes at just the right time so that humanity might be free for the first time to follow God in ways that are genuine and true and free from the entanglements of sin and even death. So the, the short is where before Christ, we're stuck in a maze in which every turn is a dead end. That's sin. Christ comes and liberates us and shows us the road ahead and says, this is the way, walk in it. Follow 
me, he says. And the the thrust of Peter's argument here is that since the people have been liberated by Jesus, since, since they are free from the first time from the maze, since Jesus shows the way that we are to follow him in his way, he leads us along the path. Essentially, he says, if Jesus is what liberates you, Jesus is the model and the one to follow. Do as he says, do as he does. Follow after him. Obey his commands. Right? We, we see this sort of natural progression. Right? It's not that just Christ frees us, although Christ frees us, and that is good news. Am I right? right? Jesus frees us from sin, but freedom from sin essentially means that now we have the power to choose which way to go, whom to follow. If we're lost in sin, we are inevitably drawn into and following after things that are not of God. It is a foredrawn conclusion. But in Christ, we are set free from that. If, if in sin, we cannot go where, even where we want to go, in Christ now, Jesus says, you may go where you will. And Jesus gives us a choice which way we follow. And we are free to follow that. Do we follow, again, falling back into the traditions and the ways of of trying to effect salvation that aren't from God? Or are we going to follow Christ in his way, in the way that leads to life? But but if we believe that we have been redeemed by Jesus, if we believe that, that in him is life, then we must follow him. And if we are to say we follow him, we must then do what he says for us to do. We must walk in the ways that he has given us to walk. This is obedience. Obedience sometimes has a, has a negative and pejorative way of saying we, we must be obedient to God, but, but that's essentially just saying we submit ourselves to God because we, we're saying we're a mess on our own. Right? To obey God means say, I don't have the answers. I've been really bad at managing my own life. At the very least, I've been really bad at trying to affect my own salvation. To obey, to submit, means to follow the one who you believe has the answers, who believe knows the route. If I'm lost in the woods... And someone comes up to me and says, I have a compass. I can say, well, I could probably get my way out. You know, moss only grows on the north side of the tree or whatever it is, right? But someone has come to rescue me and says, I know the way out. I know a way out so you don't hit the trees, so you don't get lost, so you're not wandering around. We follow them. And if they say, we need to go over this bridge, we go over that bridge. If they say, we need to go through this cave, I go through that cave, right? Because they know the way out and I don't. That's what obedience to God is. It's to say, you know the way out. Obedience to Christ is to say, not only you know the way out, but you are the way out. And so we follow. And we do as he does. We follow as he leads. We obey what he says. Which means that we adopt some pretty strange practices. And some pretty strange ways of being in the world. Remember all that stuff that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, or love your, now I'm going to mess it up. (laughs) Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, 
Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That puts us at odds with people around us. We follow because we believe he is not just the one who knows the way out. We follow because we believe he is the way out, as he has said he is. But we don't obey rules for rules' sake, right? Rules and commandments aren't bad in and of themselves. But it's not in following those things that we are saved. It's in following the one who gives them to us that we are saved. We are saved in Christ alone. But our lives are formed in ways that conform to his way. Not love those who love you and hate those who don't. It's love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That looks weird. Looks particularly weird in a time of war. What does that look like? How does the church embody that? These are the questions that we are given and the means by which we are called to follow. And we look to the one who is the way out, Jesus It's interesting, outside of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't command his disciples to do all that much. He tells them to pray. Tells them how to pray. But one of the only specific commands, and I'm going to say specific, because Jesus says lots of stuff, gets lots of things that people should do. The, the, The specific command, the one specific command that Jesus gives, do you remember what it is? A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so too you must love one another. In so doing, all people will know that you are my disciples. That is partially to say, A, love is not an option for us. But that following Jesus should always result in love for one another. And in our discussions of everything we do as a community who follows Christ is how do we best love one another and our neighbors? I won't try to go into what all that means. But obeying God leads to loving one another. Obeying God leads to loving one another. And our obedience to God is always lived out in the context of loving one another. I want to be clear. Love does not always, is not equal to just being nice to everybody, right? Or not having conflict with people. That's not what love is. I I have conflict in my family, but we still love each other. And we work that out in love. It's not to say we don't disagree. It's not to say lots of things, right? What it is to say is that we do this out of genuine affection and care for one another. What I do with you, for you, around you should arise and should display my care for you. At least I pray to God that that's the case. But that's where Peter seems to go, right? Because he says very specifically, you have set yourselves apart by your obedience to the truth. So that, it's very interesting, he says, so that, with the result being that you might have genuine reflection for your fellow believers. Love each other genuinely, or excuse me, deeply and earnestly. The obedience 
leads to and is lived out in this context of love for one another. And we respond to God in that. And then he says, do this because you have been given new birth. Again, Peter goes, goes to say that, that this all arises, this love, this command to love one another as Jesus has loved us, comes out of this, this fact that we have been given new birth, new life in him. Right? In Christ, we are different people. <coughs> Paul says, right, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation, a new creature. The old has gone. Behold, hallelujah, all things are made new, he says. And so this is what Peter's saying, right? You have been made new. You, you quote unquote look different, you act different. Yes, you're out of step with the world around you, but, but this is to the glory of God the Father. You've been given a new set of practices, a new way of living in the world, a new way of, of dealing with one another that's not out of futility, that, that doesn't say might makes right, that doesn't say, you know, I can buy my way out of anything. It's, it's genuine love and affection and, and holding accountable and doing all these things that families do for one another, that people who love do for one another. <clears throat> and this is what arises out of what Christ has done for us. Because of his death and his resurrection, all things are new, including us. As we follow him, we are made new. New birth. And new birth means new practices. And new practices means new way of walking in this world. New practices means sometimes walking against what those around us are doing. Disagreeing. Right? We can disagree and still love, can we not? We can hold one another accountable and still love, can we not? We can and we should. Because we are made new in Christ. He makes all things new. Gives us new way of being that arises and results in mutual affection, genuine and deep love. For one another. We are called to love as Jesus loved. And if we want a definition of what it means to love our neighbor, I suppose this is it. Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He patted us on the head and said, do better and sent us on our way, right? He sat us down and says, God commands, thus saith the Lord, go do it. Right? He does ask us to do better. He does say, this is what the Lord says. But instead of saying, okay, you can do better. Go do it with my blessing or whatever. Jesus says, I know you can't on your own. And Jesus gives of his own self, his own life for us. Out of love, out of care, out of desire that we be the people who God has called us to be created us to be. He gives of his life, though he did not deserve to die for any of things he did. He submits to death on a cross and God raises him to new life and says, Hey, guess what? <laughs> this is how God is. And this is how God acts. And this is what God has done. And this is one thing in which Jesus says, go and do likewise. 
Now, you may not be called to give of your life for someone else. You certainly cannot save someone else, at least their soul. But we are told over and over by Jesus and many others throughout the Christian witness in history that we are to love one another in those ways. Paul, to the Philippians, says, love one another as God has loved you. Submit to one another. He, he says, consider others more important than yourself. This is hard. He says, have as your example and have in you the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who, being very nature God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited and used for his own benefit, but rather he emptied himself He became nothing. He took on the form of a slave, even to death on a cross. Paul says, this is the example we're to follow. This is the love that we are to embody. All of which is made possible because Christ died and Christ rose again. And Christ gives us his spirit. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. That's Pentecost. But we are given his spirit so that we have the power to follow him. Before we could not choose, but now we can. Before, even if we wanted to, we could not follow. It was not in our power. But now, Christ says, you are free to choose. And I will give you the power to not only choose what is right in terms of how to live for your own, but I will give you the power to know and to have the mind of Christ so that you might know what is God's will, what his good and perfect will is. This is big news, folks. We have salvation, but we have so much more. This is what it means to have salvation. It's not simply to go to heaven when we die, and that's an awesome thing. What a gift. But to live here and now the redeemed life, to live here and now the life that God calls us to, to be who we are created to be as we walk in obedience, which leads to love, which leads to, and this is a little outside of our text, to God be the glory. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. By your good deeds, they will see and praise your father who is in heaven. We are to live, and this is, I don't know, I seem to beat this drum a lot, to the praise of his glory. It's not so that the world around us can say, wow, there's such nice people there in the church. I like those church people. Now, it's nice. It'd be good that the world says, we like those church people. They do some great stuff in our community. They seem to have the love that they talk about, right? That, that's a great thing. But that's not why we exist. Because if it stops there, Let's pack it up and go home. If it's just you're all nice people, I like y'all, by the way, you all are nice people, but if, if it stops there, well, we can do that anywhere. We live to the praise of his glory. We want to say, if you think we're good, you should meet our daddy. If you think we're kind, you've not seen nothing yet. You should see the one who makes it all possible. We live so that we might lift him up. And all this is made possible in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I don't know how you're feeling today. I don't know if you're feeling lost. Even as Christians, we sometimes can feel like we're in a maze. Like, I don't, I don't know which way to turn. And every turn I make, everything I do seems to be wrong. I, I just want to admit that sometimes that happens to us, whether we know Jesus or not. Can I tell you to say, I know someone who knows the way out. And here's the better news. I know someone who is the way out. He died and God rose him from the dead so that he might show us and remind us that he is the way. And he is here with us today. He has promised to be. This is where you are gathered in my name, or two or three are gathered in my name. There's more than three here. I know that. I can see. I'm not good at math, but I can count that high. There are at least three of us here who are here for Jesus. And Jesus said, if, if you're here for me, I'll be with you. And he's here this morning saying, I know the way out. He's here this morning saying, guess what? I am the way out. And he has offered himself to us. Offered to take our hand and lead us. To redeem us from futility. To give us an inheritance that we cannot buy for all the money in the world. That we cannot secure by following all the right rules. He says, I know a way out. I am the way out for I have given myself for you you might know the way out and that you might live for the praise of God's glory. Because God is good. All the goodness that we see and know pales in comparison to the God who has called us. The one who we sometimes look at and think he's just the big baddie in the sky who enforces all the rules. No, he's the one in the sky who says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls who desires to gather us to God's own self that we might have life eternal, that we might be reconciled. And he does this in Jesus Christ. For Jesus is the way. And Jesus offers his hand to us this morning. You may be a Christian, you may not. But Jesus is offering his hand to all of us today and saying, will you follow me? You feel stuck. You feel lost. You feel futile. I know a way out because I am the way out, he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus leads us to the Father. So we're going to take some time this morning as the worship team comes back up, and we're going to take some time for prayer. I know we already prayed this morning. I personally have no problem with praying again. Prayer is good. Prayer is the means by which we communicate to God, and he communicates to us. But I want to invite you this morning, if, if you want, if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling like you're stuck in that maze of futility, where every turn seems to go wrong, if you just need to be reminded this morning that there is a God who who has provided the way out. 
I would invite you to take some time to pray this morning. Now, we have these things, altars at the front of our church. They're not magic, but they are special. In and of themselves, they are wood and they are varnish. But it's a place where we come to meet and to speak with the Lord. And so if that's something that you feel Jesus is calling you to do this morning, I want to just invite you to come and to pray. Come pray for that salvation. Say, Jesus, you are the way and I want to follow. Or you may just say, Jesus, I feel like I've heard from you in a while and I need help. It's a good place to do business with God. It is a holy place, a set apart place. We have set apart for meeting with God. And so as we sing this song, I invite you to come if you want. Now I'm going to kind of make some distinctions here. Some people like to pray with others, right? When they come and pray, they want people to gather around, lay hands, right? All that stuff. And that is good. That's what the community is for. Some people would rather not, would rather just, I need some time with God. So I'm, I'm going to make some distinctions here. Hear me out. Give some direction. Because this not only goes for you if you want to pray, but also the rest of us who are called to pray for one another. If you feel you want to do business with God and you'd like someone else to be there with you, either to help you, either to give you direction, or just to pray for you, come here. That way we know. If you're gathered here, you'd love to have people gather around. If you're kind of just saying, I, I, I need some one-on-one time, I need to do business with God, here would be a good place. Okay. The short version. If you want people to pray with you, come here. If you want to pray alone, come here. But Jesus offers his hand. He's given us his hand. And asks if we want to come along in the way of salvation and the way of life. Let's pray. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you. for you and for me 
earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Time is now fleeting, the moments are passing, passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering, deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. As we close, I want to kind of do something a little different in our closing. Um, I'd like to sing first. We read on, right? Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure they knew what was going on too. Um, I'm going to sing first. The song that, that we have chosen to end with today is a song that we've sung several times called Not My Will. And each and every one of us is called to submit to the will of God. Not, not because God needs us to be servants, but because his way is best. And he has provided it for us. And so I, I, I just kind of want to end with that today. That, that his will, not ours, be done. And, and once the song 
once the worship team calls me back up, I'll, I'll give you a benediction. And we'll close with that. But I'd just like us to sing our response. For he has called all of us, regardless of whether we were here or not. And this is our response to the God who calls. So I'd invite you to stand. And if this is your prayer, to sing with us.